Good morning. It is always good to be in the house of the Lord, and it is a privilege to come before you to bring his word. Um, I'm mindful that most of you guys uh, just sort of come on Sunday mornings and you, and you receive a sermon and you don't really hear about some of the th- great things that the Lord does to produce that sermon. Um, and as mo- is most of the case with me, it takes a lot more of God's grace to do it for me because I'm not quite as good at it as um, some other people are. But um, this week, uh, we've had a, a little bit of a rough sleep week because I have a two-month at home. And uh, praise be to God that he gave me no thoughts for the first like half of the week. And it was really tough. And I went to youth group and Praise be to God that he used our youth group to help me. Um, Shout out to you guys. Well done. Thank you so much. I'm really thankful for you guys. The Lord seems to speak uh, louder when I'm in your presence um, and I'm teaching you guys. So I'm really thankful for you guys. And then, then, as many of you guys know, um, the three pastors went to Dr. Griffith's funeral yesterday. And what a beautiful uh, testimony of God's faithfulness in, in a great man of God. And uh, as I was sitting there, I, was, I couldn't help but think, you know, this is, this is amazing, the amazing things that people are testifying about this man. And it was a swift kick in the pants because it was like, wow, this is amazing and this is great. Um, and so it was a, a really energizing uh, service, uh, a service that really got the juices flowing and I, finished, I came back after the funeral and finished my sermon in a big flurry of, this is awesome. The Lord is good. And so hopefully uh, this sermon will also be good. So um, let's turn our attention to Jeremiah chapter 27 and 28. It's a relatively long passage, um, but we need to read all of it in order to really get a sense of it um, as we go through it. So strap in. It's going to be a long, uh, long reading. But I have shortened it for you, um, so I have summarized uh, in some places. So um, let's turn our attention to the Word of God, starting in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the, king of Josi- uh, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus said, the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. 
So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land and work, to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. And then he like turns to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, and essentially repeats the call to submission to the king of Babylon. And continuing in verse 12, um, to Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in a like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. And then starting in verse 16, he repeats the call to submission. So we get three times the call to submission. But in this last section, Jeremiah addresses the hope that the sacred vessels that were looted from the temple would be returned uh, from Babylon. And basically, he says they aren't coming back. And the false prophets will say that they are coming back. And now we uh, arrive at chapter 28, where the false prophet Hananiah shows up and speaks this prophecy. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah, the prophet, in the presence of the priests and all the people who are standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Now, let me summarize the end. Hananiah then takes the yoke off of Jeremiah and breaks it. And after a little while, God tells Jeremiah to go to Hananiah, and there he says, starting in this verse, in verse 13, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And they shall serve him, for I have given to him even the beasts of the field. And then Jeremiah pronounces judgment upon Hananiah for his lies, and Hananiah dies. And that's the end. So let's pray. (laughs) Father God, we come before you often weary and tired and sleep-deprived, preoccupied with other cares in life. We ask that you would break through the haze and the other cares, that you would capture our hearts and minds. Lord, we have the same problem that the Israelites do. We either actively or passively refuse to submit the entirety of ourselves to you. And as we look at submission this morning, we ask that you would transform us by the power of your word 
that we would submit all the more to Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I want to start this morning by talking about bosses. And don't worry. Don't worry. Okay. And I'll bet that when I ask uh, if any of you have had a boss that you hate working for, most of you would sort of nod and inwardly say to yourself, ugh, that boss. Unless you think I'm taking a shot at uh, Dr. Dave or Dave Dorst, I can say without hesitation that I love working with both of them, and we laugh a lot at the office, uh, and we're always ready with some good singers and all of that. And apart from Dave's uh, willingness to uh, call out my inability to spell the word bed and uh, my lack of uh, classic rock knowledge, uh, I can say that he's got my back and that I've got his. But many of us have or currently have or have had terrible bosses that we absolutely, absolutely hated working for. It might have been because they were incompetent or lazy or dishonest or just simply mean. And it might have been because they were, we thought that they were just morally reprehensible people. But regardless of the reason, most of us took steps to get out from under that boss as soon as possible. I mean, who really likes to work for someone they really don't like? And that's really the situation that Judah finds itself in. Zedekiah, Zedekiah finds himself in. When we hit Jeremiah 27 to 28, it's been four years since Nebuchadnezzar has taken uh, Jerusalem and forcibly deported the upper crust of Jewish society, including exiling King Jeconiah, which we heard about just a moment ago, and his mother, which we had seen prophesied in Jeremiah 22. And Zedekiah and Judah are now vassals of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he's like the worst of bosses. He's morally reprehensible, he's a tyrant, and he's the author of both personal and national disaster for just about everyone who's, been living, who's living in the land of Judah. And imagine having a dirty pagan as a sovereign overlord, having to pay him an exorbitant and humiliating tribute, and having to obey and accommodate Babylonian laws and religions which you find detestable. And sure, Zedekiah is king in Judah, but his pos position is precarious because at any moment his boss could show up with an army and slaughter literally everyone. And so it's no wonder that Zedekiah would look long and hard at any opportunity to get out, uh, get out from under the yoke of Babylon. And he gets one four years into his reign. You see, at that time, at the beginning of chapters 27 and 28, an uprising had occurred in Babylon, in Babylon the city which is about 700 miles away from Jerusalem. And it took Nebuchadnezzar's focus off of sort of his surrounding vassal states at the edge of his kingdom. And so this meant that Zedekiah had a distracted boss 700 miles away, and so what better time would there be to throw off the yoke of Babylon by forming a coalition of uh, vassal states nearby? This is why those envoys at the beginning of chapter 27 are in Jerusalem. They're plotting to overthrow, uh, throw off the sort of oppression of Babylon. And it's time to rebel. And it's into this climate that Jeremiah speaks in our passage. And so before we start talking about submission, it's important to start where Jeremiah starts, which is sovereignty. 
So if we look at verses 1 to 7, we begin to see that Jeremiah starts with sovereignty. And when we talk about sovereignty, it's really just about uh, the authority of the one who wields that sovereignty. And in this case, Jeremiah makes it very clear that the one true sovereign in all of human history is, surprise, surprise, God. So look with me at verses 5 to 7. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever, whomever it seems right to me. And I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and their grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many great nations, uh, many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. And so God's authority rests on the fact that he is the one that made everything. He's the creator. And as such, creation is his and his alone. And this is the concept that Jeremiah established way back in Jeremiah 18 with the illustration of a potter and its clay. The potter is God, of course, and he can make and remake the clay, which is creation, into whatever he wants. And so what this means is that even the greatest king of the greatest superpower that the world had ever seen at this point is but a servant to the Lord God. And on top of that, that servant is at the mercy of the Lord. Sure, the Babylonians look unstoppable and unbeatable, but God is completely unconcerned about their power. He has already planned their downfall, in fact. Do you see it at the end of verse 7? Then many nations and great kings shall make him, meaning Nebuchadnezzar and his house, their slave. And so God is so sovereign over all things that even the rise and fall of kingdoms is no big deal. God easily gave kingdoms to Nebuchadnezzar, and he can just as easily take them away when he sees fit. And because of God's overarching sovereignty, he expects everyone to submit to the rule of the king that he raises up. And nothing really gets in God's way. I mean, look at the way the false prophets are dealt with in chapter 27. Remember, false prophets were and still are potent forces driving people towards sin and judgment. You think that God would be sort of concerned about them. And sort of at the end of chapter 28, Jeremiah accuses Hananiah of making the people trust in a lie. So fake false prophecy is like fake news. It has a big impact on how things go and what people think about and how people think. But nothing bothers God or comes close to touching his plans. How are the false prophets treated? They're really merely identified as liars, and then the people are just told to just not pay attention to them. Do not listen to the false prophets. Pretty straightforward, right? And that's all that is said. And so on the basis of sort of this supreme authority, this supreme sovereignty, God tells his people to submit to whatever his plan is. But the question is, well, now, who do we submit to? We obviously submit to the Lord, but we are also to submit to his servants. And we're going to see how the two servants in these chapter point us to a third servant, who you could probably guess is Jesus. And so let's look first at the submission to the servant king. The submission to the servant king. When Jeremiah spoke his words with a wooden yoke hanging around his neck, the envoys and King Zedekiah 
must have looked like, at him like he was crazy. I mean, think about it. God is telling them to submit to a pagan king who has conquered, exiled, and plundered God's people. Nebuchadnezzar was the definition of a nightmare boss, remember. And so wouldn't it be righteous? Wouldn't it be the best plan for God's people to reestablish Judah as an independent nation? Wouldn't it be righteous and the best idea to get out from under this horrible king? Wouldn't it be righteous to resist the unrighteous? And Jeremiah's answer is no. But why? It's because Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. God has chosen him to bring judgment upon his people. And so getting rid of Nebuchadnezzar would be a great idea if, you, if it also didn't put you into opposition to God's plan for Judah. Now remember, God's plan is for his definition of their good, not their definition of their good. And so a pagan king sweeping through with the sword, famine, and pestilence is actually for the people's good. Well, how so? How can destruction be good? And answering that question requires us to start in the right place. The idea of getting out from a horrible king and reestablishing Judah's independence and resisting the unrighteous presupposes that you are the righteous one. But that's quite simply not true. Christians understand or should understand that no one is righteous. Romans 3.23 is a pretty well-known passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We believe it, but it's hard to live with the implications of that verse. It means that we deserve wrath and destruction and eternal torment. And so Babylonian subjugation is simply Judah getting what it deserves. Which, is Jeremiah, which Jeremiah has spent like the better part of 26 chapters, or every chapter before this chapter that we get to, he spent all those 26 chapters establishing their sin. And so God's plan is to remove all the things that the people of Judah turn to instead of to God. And so they're going to get rid of the temple and sacrifices, which they turn, to, they turn from worship into superstition. And he's going to get rid of their nationhood so they can't think that their armies or alliances with neighbors will save them. And he's going to get rid of their prosperity so that they have absolutely nothing left other than to turn to God. And that's the point of the exile. To try to give them the thing that they most desperately need, a singular faith in the Lord. But it's the thing that they will do everything in their power to avoid. And so the upshot of all of this is that Jeremiah tells them to do something that they don't want to do. And Jeremiah tells them to do something that every fiber in their being strains against. Jeremiah tells them to submit to the yoke of Babylon, to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, the servant king. And that yoke is heavy. It starts off as wood, but ends up by the end of chapter 28 being iron. And that's hard. It's unpleasant. It's not something that you'd want to do. But it goes further than just sort of begrudgingly submitting. They're also to serve him. You know, when you place a yoke on oxen, it's so that they pull in the same direction and they pull, pull calmly and obediently. And they work as a team to serve the farmer since it's the farmer's yoke. And so Jeremiah is not just telling them to submit, but to serve willingly. 
to be good and loyal citizens. Next week, we'll be seeing Jeremiah telling the exiles to seek the welfare of the city in which they live, which is Babylon. And so Jeremiah is telling them to go all in on the Babylonians, which just makes no sense from a worldly perspective. To go all in on the Babylonians, seriously? They are to commit wholeheartedly to the exile. And really, they are to commit wholeheartedly to it because it is the calling of the Lord. Regardless of how backwards, countercultural, or costly it might seem. And the point is that the yoke of Babylon isn't just a thing that they want because God ordained it to be so. They want the yoke because God will bless them if they put, the, if they put it on. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 27. God promises to leave the nations that submit on their own lands to work and dwell there. But really, here's the kicker. God also promises that they will live. And so putting the yoke of Babylon, though it be heavy, is a life and death decision. And the way of life is to be yoked to the king that is the servant of the Lord, even if that yoking is hard. But even, if, even though that yoking doesn't promise Eve, ease, it is made easier by one fact. God's prophet is yoked right there with you. Jeremiah will suffer just as his countrymen suffer, which brings us to the submission of the servant prophet. Submission of the servant prophet. So, the submission of Jeremiah to the Lord is relatively easy to see. If nothing else, the wooden yoke on his neck is proof of his submission. And so let's take a closer look at that yoke because I think it's a great illustration of how far Jeremiah is willing to go for the sake of the Lord. Jeremiah is told to make straps and yoke bars and to put them on his neck. And then he's to take this sort of lopsided, clumsy, heavy contraption into the king's court where the neighboring countries have sent sort of their best, their ambassadors, to plot rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. And he looks absolutely ridiculous. Can you imagine a guy showing up in the front with a yoke bar on his neck? Right? It just looks ridiculous. And that's the point. Jeremiah didn't even ask the Lord if he could just simply carry the yoke into the court. He, he even went so far as to keep wearing the, the, the yoke after he had been done with sort of delivering the message. And we know that because he's still wearing it when Hananiah shows up afterward in chapter 28, and, he, and Hananiah takes it off in chapter 28 and breaks it. So he's just perpetually wearing this yoke around, just sort of stumbling along with this heavy wooden, like, circle around his neck, essentially. No self-respecting person would do this, right? Like... As a youth pastor, I'm willing to go to great lengths for my students. I'll do lots of things. I'll let them shoot like hostess cakes out of a slingshot at me, right? At like 90 miles an hour. And why do I do that? Why am I willing to look like a fool for them? I'm, it's because I'm committed to them. And so in the same way, Jeremiah is committed to the Lord. But there's a second and more subtle submission. And look at what he says in response to Hananiah's false prophecy in chapter 28. Remember, he's already prophesied that 
other so-called prophets will try to refute this word, but what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth in response to Hananiah's false prophecy? It took me by, the, by surprise. The word is amen. Amen. He says in verse 6, amen, may the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. And that's just absolutely bonkers, okay? He's saying to the false prophet, I hope your false prophecy comes true. But the real heft behind it is the fact that if Hananiah's false prophecy comes true, that makes Jeremiah the false prophet. Because he's prophesied the exact opposite of what Hananiah has. And that would also have meant that Jeremiah would suffer and pay the penalty of false prophets, which is nothing less than death. So do you see what Jeremiah is saying? He's saying, I'm, I hope that this happens. And I hope so much that this happens that I'm willing to go to death for it. I'm willing to pay my, my very life for it. And so do you see the heart of grace and compassion in Jeremiah? Do you see his desire for his, comfort, his countrymen to avoid pain and suffering? Do you see the heart of God really mirrored in Jeremiah's heart? And so Jeremiah's submission is not only in his actions wearing this ridiculous contraption and his words as he faithfully proclaims God's word, but also in his heart. And so Jeremiah has submitted everything to the Lord. His will is to do the will of the Father and to love as the Father loves. And so we can see that Jeremiah is literally and figuratively and spiritually and personally all in. He didn't care about his ego. He didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care that he looked ridiculous. He didn't even care about his life. He simply cared about obedience to the Lord and to demonstrate God's love to his countrymen, to his brothers and sisters by pointing them to God. And so where does this leave us? First, we have submission to a servant king that even when we don't really want to because we're all in for the Lord's call and plan for our lives and because by the king, the Lord will lead us on the path of life. That's where we started. And then we have the submission of a servant prophet that displays a heart of compassion while submitting to the judgment and suffering that the Lord has ordained. And guess what? All of it points to one person. And Jesus is that one person. His gospel provides everything we need to respond to Jeremiah 27, 28, because he is the servant prophet king. The servant prophet king. How so? Well, Jesus is the better servant king. Though it doesn't seem hard to be better than Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is useful in showing us the plan of God. For by Nebuchadnezzar, God brought judgment upon sinners, destroying them. And by Christ, God brought judgment upon sinners, destroying Jesus on the cross. Do you see what Christ has done for us in the vein of Nebuchadnezzar? He has destroyed the sinful us so that we might live in the newness of life. Galatians 2.20 tells us what Jesus has done. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
The whole point of the exile was to destroy our independence, to destroy our self-reliance. And so Christ does that ultimately. And finally, by destroying the sinful me, sure, I still sin and see a war in my flesh for obedience and righteousness, but the war is won, and I am a new creation. The only life that I have is the one that I find in the death and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus is also the better prophet. He didn't just bring a word of conviction, but also a word of hope. He didn't just bring a word of judgment upon sin, but also a word of rest and peace. Jesus is the prophet who prophesies peace in Jeremiah 28, verse 9. And we know for certain that the Lord has truly sent him because he actually brings that peace. Jeremiah's point here in 28 is preaching peace is so rare. To actually see peace come is so rare that the only way that it will actually happen is if God does it himself. And so John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Philippians 4, verse 5 through 7, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he is at hand. Friends, in Christ, we are able to get rid of the yoke of iron that the Lord placed upon Judah, a yoke of sin that binds us and weighs us down. Hebrews calls it the sin that so easily entangles. And Matthew 11 makes it clear that when we go all in for Christ, when we go all in on Christ, when we come to him, all who labor, who are heavy laden, Christ will give us rest. And he calls us to take his yoke upon you and upon me and to learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart, and we will find rest for our souls. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But that burden isn't lifted without cost. You see, Christ too had to submit to the sovereign father. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 tells us that. It's one of my favorite passages. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Here's submission. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the second half of this passage reminds us that we are to submit to him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are to submit to the Lord Jesus in everything that we do. And Jesus doesn't just tell us that he is our Lord and Savior. He has a call on each of our lives. And that call will look different in some ways and the same in others. But the outcome is the same. We are to be people seeking out the call of God upon our lives, both in big ways and in small. And when we walk in that, 
And then we are to walk in that call, regardless of the cost. For some, this will mean stepping out in faith to answer a call that changes their whole life. As someone who has been forcibly moved by the Lord against um, my desires on more than one occasion, I can tell you that there is absolutely nothing like knowing without a shadow of a doubt that you are exactly where the Lord wants you to be, doing the thing that the Lord wants you to do. And I hope and pray that the Lord doesn't have to continue to exile me from my comfort zone to follow his call. And for some of you, it will mean stepping out in faith in smaller ways. Maybe this means inviting your neighbors you don't know over for dinner so that you can begin to establish relationships that hopefully will lead to you sharing the gospel. You know, we have a standing challenge here at Potomac Hills to do just that. The month of March, we're the last day of March, um, but don't worry, you can extend it to April if you want. We have a challenge that you invite at least one family over for dinner or for lunch or for coffee or for s'mores or just about anything. Just spend some time with neighbors that don't know Jesus. And we've seen many of you do this, and others of you are probably feeling guilty right now. Unless you think that I'm any better than you, I'm with those that are feeling guilty because I didn't do it. I'll be honest, I didn't do it. And if the Lord is calling us to go all in on Jesus, to completely submit, his, submit to his rule in our lives so much that we love the things that he loves, the gospel enables us to step out in faith because like Jeremiah and Jesus, we are secure in the one we submit to. Our egos aren't on the line because God has already told us that he loves us, and everything else is in submission to the desires and loves of the Lord, and those, who don't, uh, and those that don't know him are right up there at the top of his desires and his loves. And so I stand here convicted that I'm not as all in for the Lord as he is for me, that I'm not as all in for the Lord as I want to be, but I do want to be a man that is wholly devoted to the Lord. And you know, it's hard to sort of stand here and preach this morning without thinking about my friend, Dr. Griffith. A man that we heard yesterday was all in for him. And it's inspiring when you see that kind of faith. Because there is nothing more important to me than that people would say of me that Frank was all in for the Lord. You know, um, one of the greatest compliments that any of us as Christians can give is that they would, that people see Christ in you, that the very gospel oozes from your pores. And there's a number of people that I've met that I can say that about. And it's the highest of praises that we can give. But it's also the highest of aspirations that we all should have. That in fact, when people see us, they should see Jesus. I want to tell you one story before I wrap up with another story. <laughs> when I was at McLean Prez, a team uh, of missionaries went to Thailand with World Vision, and they labored for a, a, a decent amount of time there. And World Vision had been at this village for a long time. And they'd been working with these people to provide healthcare and water and all of the, all the like. 
And a Thai man came up to the team from McLean and said, you know, when, when uh, I can't remember the name of the organization, but when Jesus arrived at this village, things changed. And that's the highest praise that any of the missionaries could have heard. That they couldn't remember the name of the organization, World Vision, but they knew that they represented Jesus. And so it should be for us in, in Leesburg and Loudoun County that when people see us, they should see Jesus. Because Jesus has gone to such great lengths for us. I want to end by recalling a 21-year-old movie, The Man in the Iron Mask. Spoiler alert, it's 21 years old, probably shouldn't have to do spoiler alert, but at the end of the movie, D'Artagnan, who has lived his whole life teaching and guiding and protecting the king, finds himself wildly disappointed with the way the king has turned out. The king is vain, petty, selfish, and cruel. But D'Artagnan has served faithfully his sovereign king, even though it's been hard. Even though every fiber in his being wants a different king. And at the end of the movie, he ends up giving up his life in the service of his king. And as he's lying there in the arms of his friends, he says this line. All my life, this is the death I've always wanted. All for one and one for all. All he ever wanted in his entire life was to spend his whole life in the service of this king. And now it is his one desire to die in the service of his king. And so I too hope that the Lord will say to me when I die, you have served me with your everything. Well done, good and faithful servant. And so we all are for the one true king, Jesus because the one true king was for, for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, what great lengths you have come to win us, that you humbled yourself to become one of us, that you suffered in your life, did not despise the shame of the cross, but went to it for us. That you submitted yourself to the will of the Father to drink the cup of wrath down to the dregs that we might have life. And Lord, would you remind us that the way of life is submission to you wholeheartedly with everything that we have Lord, would you remove from us the desires that are counter to you, that we might see the wonder of your gospel, the wonder of what you have done for us, and would it drive us, drive us to not only submit, but to serve you with everything that we have. May we be your servants, faithful and true. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.